This is Something to Carp About, the podcast that brings Carpinteria California to you. I'm your host, Dennis Mitchell, and together we'll explore the town's attractions and issues. Welcome to the first podcast of 2023. It's a time to reflect and look ahead, with Carpinteria still facing some major changes and challenges in the months ahead. Winter storms have dominated headlines lately, having moved in much earlier than usual, causing chaos on the roadways and straining local resources. The Carpinteria Coffee Wars have heated up with the addition of the Brass Bird on Carpinteria Avenue. And during December, a new city council was seated, and one of the first orders of business was a vote to select Al Clark as the new mayor, replacing council member Wade Nomura, who had served as mayor for four years. It came as a surprise to many because of Wade's popularity and record of accomplishments as mayor. In a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time, my first guest is former mayor Wade Nomura. Wade, your upbringing is a story in itself. Why don't we start with you telling us about the challenges you faced during the baby boom era being of Japanese-American descent? Interesting question. Um, I was actually uh, born and raised in Santa Barbara. My parents and grandparents were interned in camp post in Arizona during the war. They resettled into the Santa Barbara area, and how we ended up here, when my grandfather was recruited by Avery Brundage, then president of the Olympics, to take care of his estate in Montecito. Wow. So that's how we ended up getting here. Um, as a child, um, I was born in 1953, uh, and unfortunately in those times still, there was a lot of residual uh, negativity from the war. So we were uh, often discriminated against, uh, still being considered or looked upon as uh, the enemy of the United States. And that was uh, uh, probably the hardest part of uh, being brought up, often being called, quote, a Jap. And, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was a tough one. Often did not fit in. Uh, I remember going to school and it was uh, everybody else playing in the yard and having a good time and me sitting by myself uh, trying to figure out what I can do mm. to entertain myself. Wow. Yeah. How did that affect the way you looked at our country overall? Now, you're talking as a child. Obviously, your teen years come in and all your influences. I mean, this this had to have kind of weighed it, heavily on you. It, it did. Uh, something that you couldn't control, of course. You know, it's your ethnicity. So at first, I was uh, pretty devastated by it. I always looked and hoped and dreamed that someday I would grow up to be a, a tall white guy. <laughs> Seriously, which, you know, and actually, uh, as a minority, you don't really realize you're a minority until you look in a the mirror. Mm -hmm. Then you go, oh, I am different. I look different. And unfortunately, everybody else sees you the same way. So that was probably the hardest part, was trying to come into an area where I would actually accept my own ethnicity. I think that was probably the biggest uh, awakening I had, was realizing what my ethnicity and background actually had in myself, what, what I brought to the table, those things and cultures that actually were then later looked upon as something that was of value. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a changing time. I would say that probably happened in the... Late 60s, early 70s. Right. Yeah, right. but up until that time, no, I was always the outcast. Your book, Creating Destiny, gives us a glimpse into your personal professional lives along the lines of what we're talking about right now, including how you moved forward from those controversial times. Uh, so tell us how young Wade made his way into adulthood, how it, like <laughs> your high school, your teen years. Um, I would say those were rough times. I don't know if I want to talk too much about this, only because it was... Uh, <laughs> I would say a little edgy. Uh, oftentimes, I took it negatively. There were times where I actually, you know, ended up getting into um, altercations, I would say, because of the fact that I would defend my ethnicity and that of my family and friends. Later on, as I grew up, that kind of changed. I started getting more of an appreciation for who I was, what I was. And at that point in time, rather than fighting about it, I would talk about it and say, you know what, you're not getting that. 
we are the ones that brought this, this, and this to the way you live right now. And so by finding things that we could be proud of was one of the ways that I was able to move forward positively. Okay, the maturing process. Basically, it's like you calm down and you kind of step back and look at things more rationally. Exactly. You know, as a teenager, uh, oftentimes it's easier to fight about it than it is to be reasonable and rational. Yeah, so it takes growing up. Fortunately, I did that part of it. (laughs) Uh, The BMX story is nothing short of inspiring. Uh, It's like you and the children you helped get uh, get into bike racing kind of fed off each other's energy, it seems like to me. And there you were, a professional rider in your 30s. (laughs) That's true. That's amazing. That was... uh, Again, something I had never anticipated. Something just happened. Uh, how did it happen? I'm curious. <laughs> you know, it's like to go from where you were to, to into that, you know, the, the, especially kind of at a, at a later stage in life than a lot of people get involved. Very true. Very true. I was definitely old when I started the sport. Um, I was a motorcycle racer from my late teens to uh, into my 20s and um, also continued being a landscaper. I owned my own business at that time, graduated from Cal Poly. Started my business in 76 and then merged it with my father's business. So I was a landscaper back then. I earned uh, a project in, actually a housing project in Lower West Side, Santa Barbara. This project um, of, uh, I would say, low housing, affordable housing area. We started working there and I found about five kids. They were all ages 10 to maybe 14 years old. And they would come out every day and watch me work, come out and bug me, ask me questions, you know, just to see what was going on. And I started thinking about it, and I asked them, I go, aren't you guys supposed to be in school right now? And their answer was, no, we've all been kicked out. We're expelled from school. We can't go back. Wow. And so I said, well, what do you guys do during the day? And they go, this is what we do. I said, well, you're bugging me, and you're bugging my workers, so (laughs) go grab a shovel. I'll put you to work, and I'll pay you for working. So they did that, and they started working for me. Of course, you know, they're they're younger, so I would just throw a little bit of uh, incentives at them, some cash. One day they saw my motorcycle in the back of my truck and they asked me if they would be able to go riding with me. So I took them out to one of the local tracks, threw them each on the back and did a few laps with them. They loved it. Later on, they said, we want to become motorcycle racers. So I said, you can't afford the bike. It's way too expensive. However, uh, BMX is kind of a hot sport. We may want to take a look at that. So they talked about it and they said, yeah, we would be interested in it. But we don't have any bikes. We have no money. We can't afford a bike. So I said, why don't you work the bike off? In other words, I will pay you and you guys could then go buy a bike. Well, as they're working, I looked into the possibility of opening up a bike shop. Um, At that time, my sister was unemployed. She was just graduating from college. So we opened up what was called the Murrah Racing Bike Shop. All right. uh, On Alamar Street, uh, up near State Street. Yeah. And uh, in doing so... We were able to then buy the bikes for the kids for cheap. We can get everything wholesale. So I did that. Um, and as we started racing, uh, they jumped right in and joined us. Uh, they had a few races. They had a great time. We put them in a beginner class at Stowe Park in Goleta. And uh, as they started racing and we started racing, uh, more and more people started coming to me and say, hey, you guys got a bike shop. We're interested in being sponsored. As that happened, it came about. I started looking into the possibility of making a team so mm-hmm. that everybody can go along. Well, part of the team at racing, one day there was a Father's Day race. It was on Father's Day. And they said, you got to race. You're a father. So I jumped on the bike and I ended up winning the race. And uh, one of the gentlemen that I beat actually said, there's a national coming up. It's uh, going to be in Las Vegas. And it's going to be the first time they're actually going to have an old man's class, 26 and over class. <laughs> So I said, well, uh, because of that, I'll race. And he goes, yeah, you'll do pretty good at it because he says, I usually place. 
So I went to Las Vegas. Uh, that was in middle of winter time, I think November, mm-hmm. and um, ended up being the Grand Nationals and ended up winning that race. Wow. So uh, that was my first <laughs> national title, uh, winning the Grand Nationals in, in Vegas. So I continued on, but I felt that if I was to be successful, I would have to design bike uh, better than the ones that were offered right now in the market. So I took all the bike frames that I had that I was selling in my bike shop, charted them all out and figured out which bikes were quote, the fastest bikes, which jumped the best, which handled the best, all of the above traits. And this is before CAD. I actually put this on a drawing board. And as I started marking out all of these different geometries, I found out bikes that were fast, what made them fast, what made them stable, what made everything just quicker. And then from that, I designed an aluminum bike called the Nomura Racing Bike. Wow. And that first year, we released the bike in the cruiser class that's the big wheel class 26 inch wheel size we ended up winning uh national titles in all six of those classifications first time and probably the last time it was ever done our bikes came in weighing about well at that time the average bike was about 30 pounds mm-hmm. um bikes that we were putting on the track including mine were just right around 19 to 22 pounds wow so, wow yeah so we pretty much dominated that year makes all the uh, difference in the world and, <laughs> right. and you seem to be a man who gets an idea and his head and acts on it right now this guy said we need to do that this is this is true and that's one of those things where you can always make something better i look for that my grandfather told me and this is something that goes back to my uh, ethnicity uh, being brought up my grandfather, when he was at the Brundage's estate, I was probably four years old, maybe, and he walked me through one day when Brundage was coming home, he was due into the estate. And as we walked through, he showed me the garden and what he had done. As we left that garden, he said, wait, I want you to look back. So at the gate, I looked back and took a look at it. He goes, what do you see? I said, I see a garden that's immaculate. He goes, every hedge was trimmed perfect. There was not a weed anywhere in sight. The gravel was all leveled out, and even the dirt had rake marks in it that were geometrical, had shape and figure. So I says, it's beautiful. You did a great job. He goes, your lesson for today, and I want you to remember this, wherever you go, whatever you do, always leave it better than you found it. Right on. And so that's what I live for. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Grand Canyon hiker. I've hiked the Grand Canyon a dozen times, and uh, leave no trace. That's is it. the motto it, exactly? Yeah, exactly. So, so there's a parallel there. And there's also a parallel with uh, surfing. I don't know if you surf or or, <laughs> or in it, but as far as uh, the trouble you went to engineering a faster and better vehicle, right? The surf world is immersed in that constantly, always trying to come up with faster, smoother, easier to use. Right, you know? right. I can see that definitely. So yeah, yeah. Sports, <laughs> sports. How and when did you first become associated with rotary? That was in 2002. Um, there was a, well, one day my late wife, Roxanne, came home. And she says, guess what? She goes, they're starting a new Rotary Club. And I go, well, Here in Carpinteria. In here in Carpinteria. Yeah. I go, what's Rotary? He goes, she says, it's a service organization. We have to sign up. Um, I looked at her and says, you know what? I says, I, I'm too busy. There's no way I could put this into my schedule. And I was being serious. At that time, I was involved with eight different other organizations, charitable organizations. And I was actually chairing four of them. So I said, there's no way I could fit something else on my plate. Uh, she said, well, think about it, because there is a already one club, uh, the Carpenteria Noon Club. And then we were starting a morning club. And she says, we need 25 signatures. They worked probably about three weeks on that list to try and get that. that. And one day she came home, she goes, we are almost there. She goes, we need one more signature. So would you sign? I go, okay. Three weeks, I'll sign. So I signed on as a 25th person. 
that afternoon she gets a call and she starts cheering. Oh, what's up? She goes, we got 34 members on that list oh, now. So uh, it caught me. <laughs> yeah. I was not planning on being a Rotarian. Uh-huh. So I sat in the back of the room doing basically nothing. I just enjoyed the time, enjoyed the camaraderie. I was hoping my business would get better from being right. exposed to the public, sure. which it never did. But what changed on that was a year and a half, two years later, a president of that club came out and asked if there's anybody that was bilingual in Spanish that had experience in water projects and would be willing to go to Mexico to start doing water projects. So I raised my hand and said, I would love to do that. Um, They accepted it. I said, I have all the credentials, everything you need. I ended up going to Mexico. But the interesting thing was, it was, I would say, self-fulfilling. At that time, I had never been on a plane out of the United States. Really? And this was all paid for by Rotary. Yeah. So I went over there thinking this is going to be a great vacation. When I got there, uh, <laughs> they said, well, okay, wait, it's time for you to get to work. And there's two, of, three of us total. Um, I said, well, what do I have to do? This is when we landed in Mexico. He said, well, we have to find a local Rotarians, the local Rotary Club. We have to then talk to the local government, find out where the challenges are, and locate and identify areas that are in need of water projects. Once you have that, we have to do land right agreements, water rights agreements, construction agreements, and make sure that we have the right place selected. I'm thinking to myself, okay, what am I getting myself into? Yeah. And I asked him, I said, how much time do I have? He said, you have five days. Some vacation. <laughs> <That was it. laughs> so um, we actually were able to pull that off, and that wow. was my first uh, experience truly as a Rotarian. When we finished that project, a gentleman came out, and this was a year later after we had um, put this in place for a while. And he came over, he shook my hand, and he thanked me. He said, thank you for bringing us water. For us, water is life. Thank you for yeah. bringing us life. Yeah. And that was it. Uh, from then on, I'm hooked on Rotary. Yeah, yeah, and man. Uh, the, the sense of fulfillment and reward. It, exactly. Uh, on like people that. that you'll never see with things that you just take for granted that we do up here are things that are life-changing for other no. parts of the world. Yeah, so it was a natural uh, that you would move your way up in the organization. Um and I saw at your website on your, on your speaking page about leading without authority. I love that. That has a great ring to it. Thank you. Thank you. It's something I believe in. Um, you'll never be able to lead anybody, in my opinion, especially in a volunteer organization, by telling them what to do. Right. But if they get buy-in and if you could endorse what everybody else is doing, you create a team. And with that team comes a strength. And that strength will not be broken. If yeah. you've got a team... They're going to hold tight no matter what it takes to get the job done. I've ordered lunch countless times at the spot, and I've wandered over to the Tomol Interactive Park while waiting. I never had any idea that you were behind that. It is amazing and unique like carpet cell. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, again, one of those challenges. It took us eight years to actually build that park. Is that right? Yeah, eight years. We um, first located the location, when I say we, my late wife did, and as we worked with the state parks, the state parks first said, there's no way you can do it here because we do not allow playgrounds on state park property. Mm-hmm. So they said, you're going to have to that's go. That's a weird school. rule. Um, what they wanted to do is make it more interactive. Okay. And so that's why the theme of that park came by. Later on, they started thinking about it. And they go, we'll work with you on it. I think we have an idea. So they did end up working with us to create an interpretive play area that shows the history and significance of our local region. Yeah. And that's how the park came about. And we are still the only playground, from what I understand, on state park property. Wow. Uh, that's just amazing. It, <laughs> it really is. Props to you. Agreed. Thank you. Um, 
to get into current events and and the news of the day, I for one was was quite surprised uh, when the votes lined up for Al Clark to be the new mayor at the council meeting in early December. You are beloved in the community. <laughs> Did you. you see that coming? Was that kind of a surprise to you too? Um, a bit of a surprise, but then in politics, you have to expect and anticipate that. I will say that um, I really did appreciate the public support of me. Uh, throughout the public, um, everybody says, you know, we would endorse you. But the decision is actually made by city council. Right. So it was interesting uh, looking at it later on that, you know, it would be five that would select it, which is okay, as opposed to the public. Uh, public support would have me most likely in the position. Yeah, that's So true. in doing so um, and realizing that that's politics, I know for a fact they could still contribute. Um, being on the council, um, having knowledge, having an understanding, I think I still have enough, um, I would say, influence to make sure that the city continues going in the right direction. Uh-huh. At the time you were mayor, uh, you were still working toward fulfilling your responsibilities to your district, of course. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that changes now. I mean, it would seem you'd have more time to focus on the district now that you don't have to preside over the meetings. Um, not at all. I look at the overall um, community uh, as, as a whole. I, I realize that we're voted in by the district, but I still look at all five districts as something that we have to be aware of, not just one. Yeah. Uh, my concern would be is if we started doing that as council members, we would create divisions where priorities would be set and established. And I, I see that as a potential. Not that it's happened, but in doing so, I think that would be detrimental to the actual overall cause because what affects one community or one district most likely will affect the other one. Right, right. It's an unfortunate outgrowth of having established districts in the first place. Now you suddenly have zones that could potentially be with or against each other, whereas it was the whole community before. Agreed. It's kind of Agreed. a sad, it's a, it's a radical change for CARB. It, it, it is, but I still think that um, having council members representing a council, basically the city, uh, the five of us should still be able to prioritize right. what we see as what's best. Okay. Well, I've seen and read you you excel at everything you do, and I have to say that includes the way you handled that with grace and dignity. Well, well thank you. Props to you for that. Thank you. As a newcomer, I'm curious as to how the city council's relationship is with Santa Barbara County when it comes to infrastructure and taking care of improvements here in town. Is that a cordial process, or is there a lot of arm wrestling going on with the county over those issues? That's a good question. Depending on the topic, or, or point. Um, some things are very well organized. Other ones are a little bit less. I would say that dialogue, conversation could be better. Uh, but then again, it, it could always be better, yeah. uh, regardless of the level of that one. There are some changes we're seeing coming down. And I don't blame the county for that. But what I do blame is the state. You know, we get mandated from the state. We get mandated from federal government on things that have to be implemented locally. Right. Well, it goes from the federal government to the state government to the county, then to us. And so those steps and processes, we never know what we're going to end up with. So the hardest part is we're talking different government levels. So how do you communicate this? How do you work this out? It's kind of a tricky one. Yeah, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. By the time it gets here, yeah. all the junk is there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get everything. <laughs> well, in, in particular, how do you see this current battle over the county's housing element? That is such a hot topic. and. A lot of passion there. It, it is a hot topic, and it's something that um, we, or especially myself, spend a lot of time on looking at. We know for a fact that we have um, 901 units of uh, that we have to do. In realizing this and hearing about this, quote, as rumors, probably two years ago, um, I put in place 
I, my background with the city, by the way, I started in at the Architecture Review Board for 17, almost 18 years, and was able to see a lot of this happening. Well, when they, I saw this one coming in, I took a look at the potential of the least amount of impact that we would have in this community. That one area actually had to do with ADUs, accessory dwelling units, right. where we as a city had the ability to actually zone this and change it up. As an example, garage conversions, um, additions, small additions to the back of the house. Now, those could all be considered in that number. Mm-hmm. So if we had the non-conforming ones and streamlined that to where they then became conforming, we could potentially be able to address one-third to almost half of our numbers just in putting this in place. So we started streamlining it that way. The cost to the city for reviewing these plans was also going to be reduced. You went from what an average cost would be based on hourly rate to something where the government says you can only charge X amount of money, less than $200. So we also created templates mm-hmm. for the community saying, mm-hmm. you know what, if you want to go this route, here's a template. You can use this template. The, your, you know, your application fee is going to be minimal. You just have to put this in place. And as an example, a garage conversion. Those are easy to do. Right, you got right. a footprint. You have everything you need to convert that. Um, that's pretty much standard throughout the city. Yeah, all garage conversion, garage constructions are basically about the same. Right. So doing this one, um, we were able to take a look at and minimize our impact of new building. We could, we could do it this way. What's interesting is the county hasn't done that. Mm-hmm. They never took the ADU component. It's no no so far. I don't see it in any of their documents. Yet if they did that. They would have probably two thirds of their right. their allocation already done, yeah. rather than something new. On its know. face, that's so weird. And uh, and 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 what you're saying about locally, it, it seems to me maybe enough of the word hasn't gotten out that the city is taking that approach because everybody seems to have the mindset that oh, this these huge communities are going to pop up on county land when in fact a lot of it could take place right here in the city. And, well, we have not- our own. We would have our own numbers. Uh, the county has theirs. So what happens around the surrounding areas? I hope we were able to sit down with the county and take a look at those because we, as a, the city and staff, uh, have identified certain areas that would be a lot easier to, I would say, bring in, em, um, emerge into part of the city plan, um, whereas the ones that they're doing, they're just throwing at us right now, and they come with challenges. If we were to sit down and come up with those, I think we can come up with a plan on areas that would minimize the impacts of both the county and the city. Yeah, it's it sounds a little frustrating that they're not listening up the chain there to what sounds like some some sound uh, uh, ideas and planning. County government's a little bit larger, and yeah. I think I think that's part of the process of it. Mm-hmm. We have to get to the right people and uh, be able to sit down. Uh, right now, um, they're struggling to try and come up with the numbers that they need to meet, whereas we um, are doing the same. But I don't think they're thinking about cooperative working together for something that would maybe easier well if you did it that way (laughs) a warning bell i mean (laughs) the county throws in the towel on getting it done on time that didn't send a good message i didn't think you know true true. Uh, again they're they're planning they're planning departments a lot larger than ours and they have a lot of challenges uh granted but i think um if we were to sit down actually have uh, those kind of discussions we come up with some pretty good solutions. Oh, here's hoping. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that Carpinteria is changing so much in such a short time is partly why I got this podcast going. 700 block of Linden could give the whole main drag a whole new identity. Uh, there are at least three hotels on the drawing board. Some feel that's too much expansion. Others think that that's okay as long as it's the right type of growth. Um, I would agree with that. Um, I'm looking at both. Um, 
not that we can make a decision. Uh, it's private enterprise that brings these projects forward. Uh, we can make suggestions, but it's, again, private enterprise that puts these, these projects in place. Um, hotels, in my opinion, in a downtown quarter, if we look at the overall feel and appearance of what Carpenter really is, it's always been a beach town. Right. And uh, it's always promoted tourism. As an example, over a million people come to the state park every year. If you look at tourism at its level, we cater to a certain clientele, I would say. If we look at a few more hotels, as an example, somebody wants to come in, they want to stay at a hotel, they have um, come from an affluent background. Where are they going to stay? Which hotel are they going to pick? We don't have anything that would cater to that group. Mm-hmm. And they, they could uh, give us a pretty good injection into our economy. So that's what we're looking at, different potentials in that area. Trying to keep Carpentry and downtown um, nice, right? inviting, encouraging, not only for locals, but also for tourists. And that is a fine balance. Okay. Oh, well, you, you've kind of opened the door just a little crack. So I have to ask <laughs> if, if you would care to speculate what the city's next move might be with regard to the Surfliner Inn. The campaign to stop it was rancorous, to say the least. And the outcome was such that neither side can really declare a decisive victory. Um, so what does the city do now? I mean, it, it, we're still in a, in a period, we're doing this in early January, where we really don't know the full fallout of, of the election. This is true. Um, that project's been around for a while. We've seen different renderings of that project for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, the one that we've, we have right now is probably the best of all of them that we've seen so far. In my opinion, it would be the least impactful in an area that probably needs to be cleaned up a bit. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the train when you get off, and I've done this a few times where I take the train coming in and out just to see what the feel is. If you step off onto that platform, what do you see? You see a parking lot. You see uh, public restrooms. You, you see um, a liquor store and, and then some apartment buildings. Well, is that as inviting as we should make it for Carpinteria? How does that create the, quote, destination feel of where you just get it, got off? People probably, if they went through there, saw that one, would not want to stop. Whereas if it was a hotel, based on a theme that was somewhat replica of the old train station, okay, that's what we looked at. I th- and that was always the plan. Something that made you feel like you're stepping off the platform, all of a sudden you're in, quote, Carpinteria. Something that gives you that feel. Yeah, uh, just personally, as a as a, a fairly new carpenteria, I've lived in Santa Barbara County for seven years, but uh, I moved here a year and a half mm-hmm. ago. Uh, it seemed to me that the um, the pro hotel side could have made more points way early on by referring to it more as like a train depot thing. The community could maybe get behind that, but once you call it a hotel, then it's a private enterprise thing. I think that that might have been where the division This is true. Um, We make recommendations. That's all we could do. It's up to the project developers to come up with their own plans and themes. Um, We do have control on the size, and um, they have to look at the size, whether or not it's reasonable for uh, for enterprise. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, it's, you know, something where... They can't pencil out. It's not going to balance. Okay. So they have a balancing act, we understand also. The in, I, I endorse um, with specific project. I, I would question that one. We have to see what the review process is. Okay. Uh, as one person speaking um, <laughs> and not as city council member, I, I think it would benefit the city by cleaning that section up. Okay. That's one area there that needs to be a little bit of an upgrade. 
Okay, appreciate the perspective, of course. And uh, just a couple more questions. Uh, regardless of the controversy, cannabis is here to stay. I'm wondering how you see this issue locally. One part of the population objects to the smell, and another is frustrated that the city doesn't seem to be taking advantage of the economic benefits that could be there. Hmm. Good question. Again, extremely controversial yes. in both parts. Yeah. When they first came, uh, when I say they, cannabis first uh, became, quote, legal in, in California, we knew there was going to be a a big surge in increasing the number of areas of growing. And Carpenter was going to be one of those ideal spots because of the greenhouses. People don't realize that that industry was extremely lucrative back in the day when flowers were making a lot of money. This whole valley was supported by flower growers. Right. Um, unfortunately, as imports started coming in, climate started changing, that market went away, um, went more towards um, Central and South America. So everything started importing in, including Asia now. So what did we do to protect those growers? We couldn't do much. Again, yeah. it's county area. Yeah. Uh, we tried to buy as much as we could locally, but their market is national and international. So um, based on that, there had to be a conversion of some sort. Some type of crop had to be brought in, whether it was avocados, um, orchards, or converting greenhouses to a different product, which they did. Okay. So we, we saw that coming. Uh, one of the first challenges was the smell. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody really talked about the legality of it because it was now legal. But it was the um, impact that we saw was the actual odors that came through. And so um, it was important that they took a look at that and listened to us and make sure that they were able to address it, even though it was a new industry. Right. Um, I think the public doesn't realize that this challenge came because this industry grew so fast from nowhere. Right. They didn't have the technology. They, they can grow, but they didn't have scrubbers for the air, air quality. Yeah. So I think that's where we're kind of caught right now. The unfortunate part is that it wasn't, I would say, authorized. In other words, that didn't become part of a requirement for these growers to have to put in place. They were given it, but they didn't have a time element. And that's what kind of hurt the industry, okay. uh, their industry. We had some that put a lot of money in, and they did it, did it the right way. But they weren't able to influence those that weren't doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. So now they get the bad rap with the one that's the worst, yeah. which is very unfortunate. Yeah. As far as um, locally, the city actually put in place a restriction um, on dispensaries. And there was a reason for that back then. And that had to do with... I would say just controlling specific elements. Do we need more of those? We control, as an example, the number of uh, liquor stores and liquor licenses in the city. So that would be something that we want to look at. We didn't have enough data to actually see where that would fit in. Mm -hmm. I know? see. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for that perspective as well. Uh, <laughs> I've told you at the outset I've been a fan ever since I moved here. I can see the good that you do for the community and for people. And your story is nothing short of remarkable. Thank and uh, is there anything I haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? Or uh, the future of CARP, anything in general <laughs> to kind of capsulize what we've talked about? What, what I would like to say is uh, CARP Maria, people look at me and say, you know what, you have a vision of what CARP Maria looks like. Truthfully, I do not. Um, I don't see it going in any specific direction. I do want to make sure that the people that live here live comfortably. Make that a point. Um, unfortunately, housing market has gone through the roof. So people say, well, what are you going to do about this uh, mandated housing? Uh, I think we have to look at what's affordable and what's not. When, at one point, I think it was last year, they said uh, the average carpenter house was at two point four million. Right. Well, who's gonna who's gonna move in here? Yeah. What is that gonna do? And what that is that gonna create for a workforce? 
it's not going to happen. So we have to now look at improving that part of our, I would say, our plans. Make sure that everybody and anybody that wants to live in Carpinteria could, li- could live here affordably. How that's going to happen, I don't know. One idea, by the way, would be to look at corporations. Um, as corporations come in and start working, uh, as an example, in the industrial area of, of Cindy Lane, Rather than doing that, what if they were to actually create housing elements, housing blocks, and have people, now that we can, from COVID time, work remotely? And they would be able to then buy into apartments, housing areas like that. And that would be part of them shifting from owning this large commercial building to actually paying for satellite work areas that these members of their company, employees, could actually live in and have that covered as part of their income. Wow, that's another ingenious idea. I really <laughs> hope to see you act on And it's so unique here in that what you said about everybody being able to live comfortably. So many live here who have the means to do that anyway. Right. So how refreshing to have a voice on the council looking for the people that don't. Yeah, thank you. That's thank really you. Fantastic. And again, I would consider this my paradise, my home. Oh. Uh, I've, I've loved Carpentry. I moved from Santa Barbara, went to Cal Poly, came back to Carpentry instead of Santa Barbara because... I love the feel of town. You could walk down the street and say hi to everybody. You know everybody. Uh, yeah. Walking down the street can take a half hour. <laughs> I've noticed lately. Yeah. Agreed. Um, the unfortunate part is some people take it politics uh, the way we, we choose and select. Even though we're doing the best we can to try and make it a better place, that would be the only challenge. But that's a handful of people. Yeah. You know, 90%, and that's politics. Like and that's you politics. Said. 90% right. of those people right. appreciate what you do. All right. Thank you so much, Wade. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can order Wade's excellent book, Creating Destiny, at wadenomura.com, and we look to keep touching base with Wade as the future comes face-to-face with CARP. The most listened-to edition of this podcast was posted last April because it was about the gigantic local surfing community and why the sport is more popular than ever these days. With the Rincon Classic right around the corner, I had to invite surf photographer and advocate Brent Floaten back to catch up. Brent, it's only slight coincidence that we're talking once again just as the Rincon Classic is upon us. Every year we see the poster and we know what's going on, we see the dates and all, but it's not as simple as just attending an event like you do a ball game. So let's start by having you explain how the waiting period works and how the event in general works. Well, uh, the waiting period, I think, starts... I think it toward the end of uh, December, if I'm not correct, and then runs through March, almost to the end of March. Really? Yeah, which is a pretty solid, you know, waiting period. There's not very many uh, professional competitions that'll extend that kind of a waiting period. It's usually two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, money starts to burn at that point. <laughs> but we have that, you know, Chris has that luxury of... Uh, you know, we've got time on our side. The the sponsors have an agreement with him, and um, he's got it down to a fine science where they will set up that scaffold in 24 hours, you know, bam. I see. Ready uh, to go. Okay, well, on the poster we're seeing for 2023, mm-hmm. it says the waiting period starts January 21st, or oh, at okay. least this is the okay. first weekend we can look for something to happen. Now, what is going to typically happen January 21st, yes or no, as far as the event oh, gotcha. moving forward? Well. Our, our winter, the swells start literally, I think winter started December 21st, uh, something like that. And within two days, we had our first uh, north or west-northwest swell. 
and we got um, waves, and then we had another one after that the next week. And since then, they've been getting more consistent and better and bigger. So we've had some seriously good waves for December through January, where we're still at now. And uh, we've got huge waves on the way this weekend. Um, of course, that means we have the storms and a lot of rain. And so then, like last weekend, I shot at Rincon, and it was a muddy mess, but the waves were perfect. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the effect yeah. that's going to have on it. So when is the call made as to whether there's going to be a competition on, on a particular day? Like I said, this waiting period. Chris will study the weather. He'll study the wind as the, the, the key element. And then, of course, the swell direction. They want kind of a, a west, a, a straight west, which is, I think... And I'm going to get chewed up for this, but I think it's a, a hundred or uh, 270, the, the direction, if I'm not correct, it's 270. And, uh, and it sneaks right in between the islands and comes right to Rincon. And it's very rare that we get a, a straight west like that. So usually it's a couple clicks to the north or a couple clicks to the south or whatever, and it makes a huge difference. When it's a straight west, the swell is so perfect at Rincon. It's amazing. So do they hold out for that? Or do they hold he out for as close hold, as they can get yeah, to Yeah, as close as they can get it. And obviously size is key. I mean, I, I remember four, I think it was four years ago we ran it and it was just tiny, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because, and we had missed a really good swell, I think, like two weeks prior to that. Oh, it wow. Was, it was a bummer. So it's a crapshoot, but yeah. you, you, sometimes you just got to go for it. Yeah, Mother Nature actually makes the rules. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's been very lucky, Chris has, with, with most of his calls. If, you, if you've ever looked in the, 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 the annals of history that Chris has uh, nailed it, and we've always had really good waves. So. Okay, all right. So the, the right man is in the right position. Yeah, I think so. How's the event shaping up for this year? Uh, what does the competition look like? Is there anything new about the event? Well... I don't know. Um, I think it's predominantly the same. I think they've picked up some new sponsors. Um, and also, I know I heard that the last year's champion, Dimitri Polis, is not going to be competing this year. He has um, an engagement with one of his sponsors. So that leaves the door wide open for a new champion, which is kind of cool because I pretty much think Dimitri would have won, you know. He's, okay. He's, he's that dominant. He's on fire right now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what's the state of overall competition these days? Uh, are we seeing more or fewer young new faces, and how do they stack up against the longtime veterans? Well, the veterans have to move on. There's no way, I mean, I can't, uh, I can no longer compete in the 17 and <laughs> and I get smoked. I got to say that when you ask about the state of the youth, the youth is really strong around here. Ventura, um, Santa Barbara, Ventura have a really deep um, field of, of youth. Um, f and I'm talking from 12 up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. there, there is a, an enormous field of youth. There, and, and girls, too. There's right. an incredible field of talented girls like uh, Vela Mativ and um, Maddie Stone mm -hmm. and um, a couple other girls, uh, Delaney Polis, down, Dimitri's sister down south. Just a bunch of girls that are really, um, really coming on and uh, 
So yeah, it's very exciting to see that that I keep saying that I'm I cannot wait to see three years down the road because some of these kids I've known since they're twelve and they're about seventeen, right? And they're really coming on, and I'm I can't wait to see them when they're like twenty five, somewhere in there, when they're at the peak of their talent. Um, which is funny because back when I grew up, I I would say the peak of your talent would have been in your late teens, early twenties, mm-hmm. and now it's later in the 20s and even into your 30s you see guys that that I've seen surf since you know their teens and they're in their thir- their mid 30s right now and you can see the the power and also how your mind starts to work with your body in symbionts and in a symbiont style and and it's amazing to watch it all click and when you're in your mid 30s you can really dictate exactly what you want to do on a wave it's not an accident by you that know, time I got to yeah you know I got to do this layback snap and then i'm going to go into a fade and then i'm going to do this and pull into the barrel and you know you've got it all worked out in your mind a split second before you're going to do it it's it's pretty wild is that an evolution of surfing in general did it used to be way more on the fly yeah i would think so i mean everything has changed i mean back when you know in the early 70s and 60s um when the board shortboard revolution came down in the in the early in the late 60s um, with Nat Young and, and they started riding these mid lengths and you saw the, the change of the maneuvers immediately, um, and what was possible. And then with the pintail boards that Lopez was riding and those guys on the North shore, when we look at those guys now and what they did on those boards, those boards were so difficult to ride. I'm sorry, but they were. Mm-hmm. And now you see the boards that we're riding, and and I'm not saying it's it's easier, but it is. It's much more possible to do more on the boards now. They're lighter. They flex a little more. Um, those boards were they were huge, and they were very stiff, and they had these you know straight pointed noses and straight pointed tails. And I I compliment all of those legends from back in the day that that rode those boards and made it look so easy okay you know? we'll touch on that here uh in just a little bit and then before we started the interview we were talking about uh the podcast that we run on carpenteriavalleyradio.com called the lineup with dave prodan yeah and i can concur that uh the youth surfers it's the younger surfers that he has on and you can almost um sense the competitive attitude. It's almost more gorilla-like, I would think, than uh, back in the day where the notion is that there was, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm portraying this wrong, but there's like more respect. It was more respectful thing and a more uh, dignified thing, for lack of a better word. But now it's like the competition really gets fierce, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I have to, I, I, I'll correct you there, that in the 80s and 70s, it was... Um, I'm gonna say more more of a gorilla. Really? Yeah, and okay. also um, through the '80s, the guys that I started to that I grew up watching as competition on. I'll give a couple names: Martin Potter from South Africa and um, Tom Carroll, and um, these guys: Gary Elkerton from Australia. These guys on land, friends sometimes in the water. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't look at each other. And there would be flat out, you know, brawls. Wow. Um, and everything could be solved with a, with a you know, a cold beer later in the pub. But um, 
these guys were brutal. Yeah. You know? And I think only when it became Kelly and, and Andy, which, by the way, Andy was one of those fierce competitors, too. Kelly is, but Kelly's more of a mental... He's got it up here. He, he plays the psychological game. Okay. And um, That can be just as mean. <laughs> it's extremely mean. He did it to Andy before the finals in the Pipe Masters, and he walked up to him, whispering in his ear that he loved him. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> But it didn't work. Andy beat him. <laughs> but it's a famous, um, it's a famous story, and, and there's stories that go back as, you know, as far as the, the 70s that were guys really were ruthless. And there's guys in particular that are the, um, the ones that, that have the legends around them. Potter's one of them. He talks about it today. Um, Barton Lynch, these guys, you know, they were fierce, fierce competitors. I see the kids now that are 17, they're best friends. And they all hang out after the comp. They hang out during the comp. And they're all having fun, playing. And I had to really get used to that when I started shooting, you know, the, the kids. I'm like, oh, they all, they can all hang together and run together and then surf like it's nothing, you know? And Okay. As long as they're not giving each other's waves, because then you you <laughs> destroy the whole element yeah. of com- competition. Which... So that's where the line is for this. So I stand well corrected on that issue. Wow. It's all good. It's all okay. good. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm kind of happy to hear that. Maybe that's for the better. Uh, we have seen a ton of rain lately. The rain has started unseasonably early yep. uh, on the South Coast this year. Um, this will probably be a factor in the Classic and even beyond. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. One of the things that changed at Rincon is they they put all of the homes on a uh, sewage system, uh-huh. um, which was a big issue because a lot of people didn't want to do it. Um, but it saved the septic tanks from overflowing during the heavy rains and there'd be flooding. And then the septic tanks would run into the river and the river would bump out in the sea. Right. And we'd get the worst quality water uh, of anywhere on the coast. It was horrible. Um, but they changed that. And I can't remember what date. Some people have been talking about it on um, the Facebook group Legendary Surfers, which is a really cool group. Which, That's the one I see your post. Yeah, and we just yeah. celebrated two hundred mem- uh, two hundred thousand members, wow. so it's pretty cool. Yeah, wow. um, but uh, there's a couple people that have posted the stories about that, and I think it, they changed it in the '90s. All my dates are going to get run through some of these people that know more than me, and they're going to go, "This guy doesn't know what he's talking about." <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell, uh, even in the shots that you are posting mm-hmm. uh, so far in this early part of the year, the water looks brown. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you can see the effect already. It was filthy. It yeah. was filthy. But thankfully, it's all mud and silt and the debris that's been collecting up in this river, you know, for the last few years that we haven't had heavy rain. So it's just normal flushing instead of sewage, raw sewage. Okay, now this much <clears throat> rain, uh, tell me what effect this would have on the surfing season in general. Does it lengthen it? Does it make it more exciting? Is it uh, kind of a drag in some ways when the rain starts this early and there's this much of it? Oh, this is good. I spoke about it a couple months ago. I said, um, we need the Pineapple Express to come back, which came, was, which came um, I think, in the uh, somewhere around 2000 was one of the last ones where storms would literally line up from yep. here to Hawaii and just keep coming and coming and coming. We're getting it, but it's also we're getting storms from the Pacific Northwest. We're getting storms from uh, the Hawaii area. And um, we're, we have storms after this big storm today and tomorrow. We have three, other, three more storms that are lined up that are going to hit us. Mm-hmm. So not as powerful, but 
uh, for sure. We're, we're getting as much rain as we need for a season to fill up our reservoirs, but we need a whole nother season to get us back to the actual level we needed to be at for the last 20 years. Right, so, right. Drought busting stuff. Yeah, basically. but we're, we're definitely going to make up our, our year average. I think the year average here is 18 something, and we're going to be well over that. Um, we're already on our way with the snowpack. Our snowpack is, I think, 125% already mm-hmm. and so that mm-hmm. feeds the reservoirs up there so we're and we're not even done with the we just started so we're really on track for a great winter now the other thing that the rains do which we love as surfers is the river mouse push all this silt and sand out and dirt push it all out and then the waves groom sandbars in, uh, in front of most of the river mouse and down the points from the river mouse where they're at where the current flows southerly flow, it it, um, builds nice little sandbars, and we end up with world-class sandbars. And that doesn't happen often, obviously, Mm -hmm. because we don't get this kind of rain all the time. Yeah. So that is the big bonus for us as surfers. We get to, it builds up all of these sandbars that have been extinct for however long we haven't had rains, you know, for five, ten years, whatever. Man, all surfing signs are good. All good. And the storms that push the rains, that's what generates the waves. We get the wind that generates the waves. And so, yeah, it, this is, we're all happy. All right. All right. Yeah, I can tell. Um, you know, the last time we spoke, you told me about Coast Culture Magazine, which has since rolled out. How did that process go? Well, we haven't rolled it out yet. We're, oh, I thought you had not, published one. Yeah, I know. Okay. I told you uh, December, and now it's I was now hopeful. We're in January. <laughs> yeah, I spoke too soon. I do that often. But, um, it's just me being optimistic, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with but that. What we're doing is, uh, I, I, I had told you that it's um, today. I told you it was an. It's basically an art project, which is my partner, Michael McNamara, had told me because I when I flew out to Maui to visit him and work on the magazine and uh, stuff like that. He goes, I, I was very stressed because I felt like I needed to get this stuff completed. That was back in September, and he goes, Brent, listen. You have to look at it like an art project. So there's no due date. We finish it when we finish it. And the, the most important thing is that we finish a quality magazine. So that's what I'm hopeful and, and that's what we're on track to do. So well, okay. I, I, I wish you continued luck in, in, in the workup. And as we discussed off mic as well, it's kind of like a podcast, but in print. No rules, exactly. no length. It's yeah. like when you have something good to produce, you put it out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's great. Uh, and And... Just to recap for people who might not have heard in the first podcast, mm. what is that going to entail? Uh, we're talking very nice, glossy page magazine. Yeah. Um, there was a magazine back in the uh, early 2000s called Water Magazine. It's a great magazine. There's the journal, the Surfer's Journal, which is one of the only ones remaining. And it's very thick gloss uh, covers and the, the thick print magazines, thick stock magazine um, pages and, and uh, in-depth articles, interviews, interviewing compelling characters in our surf culture all over the world. This is not just a California magazine. This is um, Michael lives out in New Zealand and in, and in, and in Maui. So he's going to kind of be the international correspondent who will be interviewing people uh, out in the field in those areas. I've been predominantly interviewing people 
in Ventura and Santa Barbara area. Um, and I do have some interviews set up down in the South Bay of, of um, some legends in the, the sport. And, you know, it's a it's really a celebration of the surf culture and history and people um, that uh, are in our field of surfing. And it can be artists, it can be artisans, um, all sorts of different types of things. One of the things uh, that I tell people is we will be, you know, I want to interview the ranch manager out at Halama Ranch that's been there for years and years and years and years. I think over 100 years. Um, things like that. Any type of culture that is on the coast, that's what we, we're going to be about. And that's what we're trying to share. And then, of course, what goes along with that is the great photography that Michael does um, and other people that around the world. The first issue will just be myself and him. We will do our photos and our articles. I think three or four articles each person. And then the next magazine will be the collaborations of people. We'll, we'll bring in other photographers. We'll bring in other journalists. We'll bring in you know this person, that person, and kind of really start to fill in the gaps that we've left out. All right. Very yeah. cool. Can't wait. Really can't wait. Uh, <clears throat> just to throw something out there in the way of a topic, maybe, or uh, just a question to ask you that may or may not ever wind up in the magazine. How do you go about choosing a wetsuit and other gear when it comes to this time of year? Well, I have the ones that I, um, you know, support. So I've, I've supported Buell wetsuits for many years. Um, and I, I really love Buell wetsuits a lot. I think they're one of the stretchiest, uh, warmest, best quality, in my opinion. Um, Is warmest the most important? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's, it's really important. But at the same time, you've got to have the flex. You can't be wearing a five mil and then you can't right. move. Right. And so the tech... like the Michelin man. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the technology now is is that of a, a wetsuit that now you've got your mobility and you're warm as heck. So it's, it's like really a second good. skin. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. Uh huh. Uh, what are the latest developments in surfboard design? Is there anything new coming down the pike? I'm seeing more and more about finless boards too. Uh, yeah. Know, in their evolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of guys that are that are testing the finless boards, guys and gals. And uh, um, but the, as far as the surfboard technology, I am definitely not the person to ask that. Um, but you could um, definitely. Dave Pradonovich is going to have some people on him that have spoken about that. I think we're still with the epoxy boards and we're still with the the foam core boards. Um, I'm probably not the person to ask for well, sure. Well, okay. I just thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, great. I you're you're it. <laughs> up on every other aspect of the sport. Um, let me ask you, you post great photos of surfers year-round. I Thanks. Does winter separate the serious surfers from the hodads? <laughs> great term. Hodads have survived the years. I love it. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's great. <laughs> Dennis, you did it. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's great. Yes, um, I think so. I mean, when the surf gets big and it's freezing, it is not as uh, inviting as, say, um, 69 degree, two foot C Street. You right. know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, 
You made me fog my glasses. <laughs> yeah, it's um, no. I know when it's winter time, and I live right above Rincon Point. I see yeah. anybody out there in January. It's like yeah. that's a serious surfer. Yeah, right it's there. Uh, it it separates the uh, the which it it should there, but there are there is an element of surfers that when it's twenty feet and the current is is flying by at twenty knots, they're they're gonna go paddle out on a giant board and and set records of the greatest surfer to ever chart <laughs> the, Vin, the Ventura Point. And they end up getting washed down in about five minutes and washed through the pier. And so now down there, the lifeguards are stationed at the inside of Ventura Point with a jet ski. So they have swift water rescue in place. They've been doing this for, I think, around five years or longer. And it's really helped save some lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Halama Beach earlier. Um, it's it's so remote, uh, even a little challenge to get to sometimes. Yeah. How does it stack up as a as a world class surfing beach, say compared to Rincon? It's flat up there. Uh, really? Yeah. Is that because of any changes in recent years, or just? Um, no. It's just always been that way. Yeah, it's just a it's a horrible wave. People shouldn't go up there. Really? Wow. I I've heard otherwise from a few, but you know. Maybe I'm protecting my my life right now. Got ya. <laughs> <laughs> well, then uh, let's move down south a little bit. As far as Haskell's Beach, I've been very encouraged to watch the they're dismantling the oil platforms out there. Yeah, and I know the the development of the hotel and and all the changes out there yeah. diminished its status as as a good surfing beach. Do you think it'll ever return to its its former glory? Uh, could could any conceivable change happen at that beach to to bring it back? Do you think? I highly doubt it, mm-hmm. uh, but but you never know what nature's going to do, you know. Um, I don't know much about that spot. Um, I can I can definitely say that there was a wave south of here, just past La Conchita, and it was called Oil Piers. I don't right. know if you remember, right? But there were four piers there, and there was. Um, three or four amazing waves. There was South Side, there was the main pier, the North Side, there was the in-between spot. And and I was surfing that until they pulled the last piling out, I remember, that morning uh, with this friend of mine, Eddie Palmer. And uh, Patagonia had tried to rally to have them build artificial reefs. I don't know if you remember this. this was, no, I wasn't here then. This was in the 90s. And it would have been the first artificial or second artificial reef in the world. And the environmental group shot it down. And I don't, I don't know why. It usually comes down to money. Mm-hmm. And they had people uh, modeling different types of artificial reefs. So there was like that big, it looks like big, giant concrete, um, I forget the name. Where you Oh, pylons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, you know, the, you drop the ball and throw the... I forget what they're called, but it looked like big pylon uh, jacks, I guess. I think that's the game. These big, giant pylon jacks. And um, they shot that down. And I don't know why, even to this point, because I believe it would have created such a beautiful habitat. Because what the pylons were doing was holding the sand. Right. And so it didn't matter what you put there, as long as it was okay for the environment chemically. The fish will come, and they will make it homes, and all the organisms and microorganisms are going to move right in. Yeah. 
and it will hold the sand. And we, if we had built two groins right there, you would have probably two of the best waves on this coast. Yeah. Because it would, it would take the natural, which the current coming around like a cheetah is super fast. And it whips down, and it would whip by the piers, and then the, the you know constant northwest winds that we get, those would would be protected, and so you, that's why the the oil piers was such a good wave because we'd surf it the entire coast would be blown out, and you could surf oil piers because it was epic. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was protected, but they didn't do it, and now you just you can see as you drive by, there's no waves there. Yeah, nothing. no, you're right, nothing. Very calm. I do have an avid surfer friend in La Conchita, though. Do you? Who, who comes up to the point and sometimes right out in front of his own place, you know, uh, a lot of an outgrowth of what makes Rincon so great. Yeah, it's know? that little spot is such a hidden gem. And I, I remember when I worked up here uh, in the 90s, I would drive by with my surfboard in the back seat, And a couple times I'd drive by Lock and Cheetah at like, you know, 3, 3 p.m. And it would be so good. And that's when you could pull over to the side of the road yeah. right there. Yeah. And I'd just go surf right out front there. And, and it was just, you know, it's not epic, but it was fun little waves. You could always get by yourself, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think it's still like that. Like, people just drive by and they don't even give it a, a look, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, Times have changed. Which is good for the Lock and Cheetah folks, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of change, I mean, last time I had you in, we were doing a more wide-ranging kind of... Uh, interview show uh and i got your thoughts about carpinteria and and all the major changes that are coming on the south coast now but it occurred to me with this interview all that stuff we talked about surfing is a constant you know regardless for for decades and even centuries one thing i have always kept in the back of my mind whenever it's flat or we have these long flat spells and everyone's you know dying inside (laughs) is that it's gonna be good sometime it's never just going to be flat, and or if you miss a session, because this is always a big one, and it still goes on to this day. If I if I don't go shoot, and then I see some other photographer's shot, and I'm I was going to go there, and it was epic. I am so like in the pit of my stomach. I'm sick, right? But I'm always like, all right, it's going to be good again. Yeah, and I'll be there. There will be other and waves. That person won't. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean? Yeah, it's almost like missing a, a big concert. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Exactly. So you avid. know exactly. What I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So avid, and we're uh, so grateful for your expertise, Brent. Uh, good luck with Coast Culture Magazine. Thank you. We're very uh, excited. Hope to see you out there at the Rincon Classic. We're going to be trying to provide some coverage. Oh, good. Which is another reason, you know, a kind of self-centered that I wanted to know about how this. Uh, waiting period works so that you know we don't go down <laughs> down there to do some coverage and there's nothing to cover uh, yeah. so it's a matter of finding out when the competition is and getting the word out to as many people as we can and then bringing some follow-up coverage to the to the radio station at Carpinteria Valley Radio he will do a post on his Instagram on the uh, I, I believe there is a uh, Rincon Classic um, Instagram page he does okay. it every year and other than that, it's also on uh, Surf Happens, his page. But he'll do a post that day that they decide, and they'll say, it's on. All right. And then they email the sponsors and things like that. So just look at your Instagram, follow uh, Rincon Classic 2023, and then they will notify you, set up notifications. But um, it's usually, he'll give you a week. Okay. Yeah. Good enough. Well, yeah. that's plenty of us. Five to seven days, something like that. Cool yeah. breeze. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brent. Thanks and for having Best me of on. luck to you. And I'll come in when the magazine comes out. All right. <laughs> we'll do it again. All right. Thanks.
The Chris you heard Brent referring to is Chris Keat, an official with the Rincon Classic. You can find out more at rincónclassic.com and we're covering the event locally at carpenteriavalleyradio.com. Many thanks to Brent Floaten, and we'll be keeping an eye out for Coast Culture Magazine. Something to Carp About is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in radio syndication and podcast production. Call 805-500-3144. Talk to you next time. I'm Dennis Mitchell.